Welcome to the Life and Times of Video Games, a documentary-style podcast about the ideas that changed video games and the people and stories behind those ideas. My name is Richard Moss, and this is a special episode that I've plucked from the archives and cleaned up for re-release. This is the Tomb Raider grid. Back in Season 1, I did a two-part story on the development of the grid-based engine and level editor for the original Tomb Raider and its immediate sequels, as well as on the impact that grid system had on the design of those early Tomb Raider titles. Now, to celebrate the 25th anniversary of Tomb Raider's first release, I thought I'd merge the two parts into one, polish the sound a bit, and republish this story. So stick around after the break to hear about the challenges of making a 3D action-adventure game in the mid-90s, the careful logic and precision behind Tomb Raider's design, the role that grid system had in the game's style and tone, and a bunch of cool stories about both the creation of an iconic game and the impact its success had on its creators. Superstars don't get much bigger than Lara Croft. Since her introduction to the world back in 1996, she's graced dozens of magazine covers around the world, been reported on in primetime news, had multiple books written about her life, been the protagonist in two and soon to be three Hollywood movies, appeared in advertisements for soft drinks and other products, starred in hundreds of comics, and depending on how you count them, at least 21 published games. To many people, she's a hero and a feminist icon, a source of strength and confidence for the cool grace with which she exerts these very characteristics. To others, she's a sex symbol, an object of the male gaze and a soulless husk of a person. But the truth is that she's just a video game character created by animator Toby Gard while he led a small development team working on a 3D action-adventure game at the British studio Core Design in the mid-1990s. Or at least that's what she was originally. She was created to be an adventurer, an explorer, a treasure hunter, a kind of female Indiana Jones with iconic twin pistols and a French braid rather than a whip and a hat. And in a feat arguably matched by none other, She has overshadowed the best-selling blockbuster game franchise that made her such a star in the first place. The story of Lara Croft has been told over and again during the past 21 years. It's a good one, and an important one, for many reasons. But this is as much of it as I'm going to tell here, now. Instead, I want to share the story of the unsung hero of Core Design's original Tomb Raider series. The thing that made it such an important, influential, and massively successful entertainment franchise that sold more than 20 million copies across its first three entries, including something like 7 million on the first game and 8 on the second. It's easy to forget it now, as we look back on its jagged environments and unwieldy controls, But the original Tomb Raider game, released in October and November 1996 for PlayStation 1, Sega Saturn, and MS-DOS, was one of the best-looking and highest-rated games of its era. Its design lacked the whimsical near-perfection of Super Mario 64, which was released about six months prior. But it made up for this with atmosphere and mood that was second to none and an alluring world that demanded a kind of patient precision. Tomb Raider, much like Jordan Mechner's brilliant 2D platformer Prince of Persia had done several years earlier, tied its mechanics, its rules by which players could navigate the world, to its detailed animation. Lara Croft moved predictably and consistently. Controlling her at times felt like moving a remarkably agile tank But that was a small price to pay for the intricate environmental puzzles that this enabled. There were multi-jump maneuvers and desperate leaps across chasms, dives between poisoned darts or spike traps, backflips up to secret areas, and much, much more. 
And if you talk to fans of the original games or to one of the developers who worked on them, they'll tell you that the secret to Tomb Raider's brilliance was not its buxom star or its sultry marketing. Although they certainly had a big contribution to its ultimate success. But rather the secret was its level design and the atmosphere that is level design, music and art created. And all of these things might have been totally different if not for one simple decision during development. One pragmatic choice to lay the levels out on a grid of square blocks. Everything comes back to that. The majority of the puzzles and certainly all of the platforming owe their existence to that decision. The same goes for the slight fog that diminishes distant objects into a white haze and the cavernous chambers and ruins and outdoor areas that provide a sense of isolation, of solitude and discovery. As do Lara's almost iconic movements, her backflips and sideways somersaults, her swan dives and 180-degree forward rolls. These were all defined by the grid. The grid meant that players would always know that if they jumped forwards, backwards or sideways from a standing start, they would finish exactly one block away. Likewise, three steps forward or backward were equal to the length of one block, as was hopping backwards, while a running jump took three steps to prepare and travelled a distance of two blocks forward. And you knew that you could execute a running jump without fail by walking to the edge of a block, hopping back, running and jumping. And when you coupled all these abilities with a grapple button that allowed Lara to try to catch a ledge while airborne, plus a few environmental elements like movable blocks she could push or pull, and steep inclines that she would slide down. When you coupled all of these together, you had all the tools needed to devise some masterful environment puzzles. Tomb Raider's grid was game-changing. It defined and confined the problem space for both players and developers in such a way that it became liberating. And as I alluded to before, it was only there because of one seemingly insignificant decision made in the interests of pragmatism and not art or idealism. This is the story of how that came to be and how it made Tomb Raider, well, Tomb Raider. Let's begin in early 1995, when the Tomb Raider project was still in its earlier stages and had only just begun to emerge from its ideation phase to actual development. I was at the end of one project, Skeleton Crew, um, working with a small team on there. And at the end of everybody's game, we kind of left in limbo a little bit with not much to do. And Toby Gard had just finished his game. He had been working on BC Racers and hadn't got a project lined up. So you're in this almost this experimental staging call of a few months of talking to other people, seeing what ideas they've got, and see if a, a team sometimes naturally forms. This is Heather Stevens one of the original Tomb Raider's two artists and level designers. She'd been at CORE less than a year at that point, having previously spent five or six years as an artist with fellow East Midland studio Rare. And that's what happened, really. He hadn't got anything to, to start, I hadn't, and we kind of ended up in the same room, knocking ideas together. To be honest, I don't know if Jeremy really knew what to do with me and Toby. We were both kind of, probably one of the shortest terms there as far as how long we'd been at CORE. And um, Toby, as I say, he just finished his game and I just had somebody come into the room and say, do you want to nip up to Toby's room and work for a couple of weeks, see what he's doing? Heather became team member three after programmer Paul Douglas and, of course, animator and designer Toby Gard, the visionary pushing the Tomb Raider project. I'd seen some of his early stuff when he first came to call. He applied with a, a really good demo disc as part of his CD, and, but that was more of a top-down Indiana Jones-style Prince of Persia platformer. And I thought that was incredible anyway, because it really was a, um, you know, a, a, a work-at-home project. He'd obviously done it in his own bedroom or something just before he'd come to call. And he put that on hold to do BC races. Toby had just mocked up an Egyptian tomb in 3D computer graphics program 3D Studio, which is a precursor to the popular industry tool 3DS Max. It was to serve as a starting point as they began to turn his vision into reality. 
it didn't take him long to do it, a week or so. And I just thought, crikey, if you could put something like this into a game, it would be phenomenal. But that, that really was just the beginning of it. Heather set to work trying to build Toby's concept into a level, but 3D Studio was poorly equipped for the task on the computers of the era. And at that point, of course, we're talking about pre the arrival of graphics accelerators on the PC. So it was literally, you know, your computer's CPU attempting to draw what it could on screen, which meant that all the preview stuff was entirely wireframe. Okay, so when the artists were trying to model stuff, they were literally just looking at a wireframe of their character or whatever. This is Gavin Rummery, a programmer who joined CORE straight out of university soon after development kicked off on Tomb Raider and chose to work with Toby's team rather than another project called Swagman after being sold on Toby's enthusiasm and the fact that it was 3D. Gavin was asked to do the code for the environments and the bad guy behaviours and any other bits and bobs that the main character would encounter, while Paul would code the animation systems. Gavin quickly determined that 3D Studio wasn't cutting it as a level design tool. If they wanted to see what it might look like when it was rendered out, they had to hit the render button and sit there, and it was like watching a you know, 56k modem download something, you know, gradually the picture would appear on their monitor very slowly, line by line, as the steam-powered computer back then would render out each line of the image. Of course, it was designed for doing stills and things like that, and FMVs. It wasn't actually designed for doing uh, in-game stuff. But what it meant was that Heather was attempting to build the levels using that piece of software, And so she was sat there with this just, uh, she was kind of building a kind of an Egyptian environment, but it was just, you just looked at the screen and it just looked like, I don't know, something out of Tron or something, you know, just all these lines all over the place. And when she was trying to show me what it was doing, she was sort of trying to zoom in on an area to go, right, we're in the room. Then she was like, ah, well, I think we're inside the room. Actually, I'm not actually sure anymore. I'm having real trouble with this because I can never work out until I hit the render button, whether I'm building things that are kind of overlapping with other things around. So it was just like a complete nightmare. It was going to take her forever. She'd been working on this thing quite a while as it was. It didn't look really like a a level as such. It was more of a kind of, would have worked maybe as an asset in a FMV or something. And I honestly, especially given the computing power we had back then, was just looking at it going, well, I, I have no idea how we're going to get this working. And, you know, Paul was the same, you know, the pair of us just couldn't really see how on earth we were going to get a character to interact with something built out of just completely arbitrary geometry. Worse, Gavin couldn't see how Heather would even build the levels, let alone how they'd go about making them interactive. At that point, I was still at the very sceptical stage of, you know, I hadn't been in this company long and I'd had Toby kind of hit me with this impossibly ambitious sounding game. And then I was looking at stuff like this and being told, well, you've got to try and sort this out, mate. It's like, Christ, you know, this isn't going to happen, you know. But I can't remember how long after that. It wasn't long after that. I did have a bit of a fiddle around trying to get, you know, I think Heather built me something really simple, like just a tiny bit of a room or a staircase or something. I was trying to do the maths around colliding with that. And it was, I was just thinking, well, this is going to be a nightmare. And then I had this idea. I can't remember when exactly that happened. It was only a few weeks after I'd been there that I played Old from Underworld, which I don't know if you remember it at all or I've ever played it. But it kind of predated Doom, and it was one of the first 3D games I'd ever seen on a PC that actually had texture maps on the walls. So that means it had walls that might look like cut rock or stone, or that were buttressed by timber pieces, or they'd been drawn to look like light is bouncing off them in a certain way. Basically, it just means that the world was not composed of a handful of flat, solid, unchanging colours receding into the distance which is how 3D games looked before that. So at the time, it was very groundbreaking, although if you see it now, if you look at a screenshot, of it, it's got a tiny little 3D window in the middle of the screen surrounded by a UI. But it was basically, it was built on a grid. It was clear, and you didn't feel like it was a grid. You felt because the draw distance was about two metres in front of your face for a start. But 
you know, you're wandering around in a cave and it seemed kind of cool at the time. It'd take me a while to realise, oh, hang on, it's, uh, it's all just built on a grid, you know, it doesn't feel like that. So I mentioned that to Toby and he was like, well, actually, he loved that game as well. So the pair of us both liked it. So then all of us as a team just got talking about it, like, wow, if we did do a build on a grid, this would make be easier, that would be made easier. You know, it was basically Toby was like, oh, yeah, I could define all Lara's moves in terms of how far she ran and jumped and how far she grabbed. And Heather was could totally see that she could build the levels more easily. Paul was like, oh, yeah, I could do the collision much more easily if we just got simple you know, grid of numbers for the heights of all the floor spaces. So it kind of all just clicked as, hang on, this this is a good idea. This will make it much more tractable as a problem. And so I started building an editor that became the room editor. This is the moment, perhaps more than any other, that defined what Tomb Raider would become. It meant the game would have a fully realised 3D world, but also a clear and consistent internal logic. Switching to a grid-based system with a purpose-built room editor would have huge ramifications for the game's development, whereas with 3D Studio they'd been left either guessing how a wireframe composition would look once fully rendered, or twiddling their thumbs and waiting for it to render so they could then check it out. With this new editor, they could rapidly prototype their ideas. You clicked on the floor space, you know, start off with a a room of whatever dimensions you decided and then you clicked on the floor spaces and moved them up and down and the same with the ceiling to build the environment or you could turn them into walls and that made it very, very, very quick relatively speaking for the artist to quickly knock together a room hit the button to export it into the game engine run around, see if Lara could reach that jump or do whatever and if it didn't Five seconds later, they were back in the editor making the adjustment. And that, it was, that took me, I don't know, a good four, five, six months, I think, just working on that. Just That was my first thing I was really working on on Tomb Raider. Paul was busy building the animation editor, the kind of sister editor that went with it. It was getting Laura kind of, all her moves linked together. So the two things kind of got built in parallel, but... Yeah, it was, also, it was a big jump forward for me. That's when it started to feel like, oh, yeah, we can do this. We can actually do this because, you know, suddenly we had Laura moving around initially on a flat surface, then on small, more bumpy surfaces and so on. And then gradually her getting her moves to navigate this environment. And of course, it dictated to a certain extent what moves she got given. Because it was like, oh, it'd be cool if you could do this, if you could jump there, if you could do that. Okay, let's put in another one. It made a huge and immediate difference for Heather and her fellow artist and level designer Neil Boyd, even when Gavin had barely gotten the editor working. Earliest experience was Gav literally just giving us this, forwarding us this little package that we opened up and because we discussed how it was going to work beforehand, what we wanted it to do, um, simple clicks, ups and downs, being able to select grid patterned areas and be able to manipulate them with the click of a mouse, I kind of had a good idea of what we were going to get, but actually having it, I mean, it's like any tool. If somebody gives you a tool that can do a job 10 times faster than anything else and allows you to push any of your ideas as far as you can, you're just wowed by it. And I just remember that. I just remember, I was just like excited. It was Christmas morning for me. It was like a gift, a present. I was like, oh my God, this is fantastic. I love it. I can build things straight away. I haven't got to wait two hours to render a scene. And that's what life was like in Max and Mayer back then. You know, you went away and you had a cup of tea. I could do it at the click of a mouse. It was phenomenal. Just build a room up, put a door in, make a set of staircases, throw a few pillars in, you know, have a very basic texturing tool that allowed me just to select a texture that I'd literally just created, tiled, put it into my room editor and then start applying it to the walls. And it was just amazing, an amazing machine to use. When you look at what was available at the time, it, it was incredible. It barely took any time at all for Heather, Neil and Toby, all excited at the power and flexibility of Gavin's level editor, to push the game's level design in an unexpected direction. One thing that made it a little, I don't know whether it would have changed the way I approached it, but when I started building it, we were very much talking, it was Tomb Raider with tombs, you know, like Tomb Mark Moon's tomb, which is just a bunch of linked rooms. And that kind of thing, that was what was in my head. 
and what we were discussing and talking about at the time. It was, you know, the le- early level designs were very much like that as well. So that's what it was planned to be, that you'd have rooms with doorways to corridors to other rooms, you know, much more like a dungeon or something. But the moment, pretty much immediately, I got it to a point where the level Heather and Neil could play with it. They pretty much took it away from me and went, oh, well, hang on, look, if I make the entire wall between two rooms a doorway, that gives me a room twice as big as I just had. You can imagine it's a bit like knocking through in a house, knocking through down one of the walls between two rooms. You've got a big room. That's what they started doing. They immediately, and you know, more or less immediately, they slapped together. I think Toby had slapped together about eight rooms in a kind of box and started building a pyramid. It was like me and Paul were like, no, 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 no. That's, you know, we were trying to keep the draw distance down. We were, trying, you know, we wanted to. You were only supposed to be in little tiny rooms with a, a small doorway that led into the next room, not be able to see gigantic spaces. But that's the way it went. It very, very more or less immediately went that way. So that really changed, I think, to an extent, the direction that the game went because the environment suddenly got very big and expansive and much more intricate than you know we originally thought we were going to be doing. Which meant that Lara became more athletic and able to do. You know, when Toby had first done his little things, she was just climbing up ledges. You know, she wasn't leaping and jumping across great big vast spaces trying to navigate them so that radically changed i think where how the game developed but it did start feeling cool yeah poor old gav we're always doing tricks we're always doing tricks with that room editor everything was in some way an illusion from a lot of boxes all spat around each other but every time we did something it, it, it just had that look on his face of that's not what it was meant to do but you've done it now so you know, I mean, it's like things like it wasn't designed to create skies, but eventually we ended up putting black textures all over the roofs or blue textures all over the roofs of rooms to give the illusion of skies in some places. It didn't, it didn't work out an idea of a sky. I think the thing that was the biggest nightmare in the editor actually was the what we ended up calling the flip maps, which was this thing where entire rooms could be swapped for an alternative version of the room, which was used quite a lot in the levels for. I don't know. I think it's particularly. Oh, well, in fact, the classic one was the uh, the system level with the water going up and down. So the room exists in two states: one where the water's at one level, and one where it's at the higher state. And what happened was we had this kind of complicated set of triggers on the floor that, as Lara ran across them, were swapping which mesh was being used for a room. And the level designers had to set that up in such a way that obviously you didn't see it happen in front of your eyes because most of the time that wasn't going to look right. So that's why all that stuff tends to happen off camera. You hear a crash or you hear the water rising and then you come back and it's changed level because we weren't animating it. We were literally swapping for an alternative version of the room that was in the different state. Heather and Neil were able to rapidly test and iterate on their ideas which meant that they leaned towards an experimental approach to the design. Whatever you drew on paper uh, was really just a guide. Uh, and we could go away with some very simple map designs on paper because it was so easy to actually build it in the editor, even if it was just a basic set of rooms. So you, so you didn't spend too long on your, your, let's say, you didn't do any intricate map designs. It just wasn't worth doing that any other way than throwing it into the editor straight away. And we'd have to have team meetings about the rough idea of what, what a level should look like, what you were actually going to do in the level, collect some keys, you know. Or, but then it was kind of up to, up to the artists themselves to create the rooms, the environment themselves. You just did your research for that, tried to get something similar to the idea that you'd got in your head and, ex- and accept that it wasn't, wasn't going to be perfect, but it just needed to feel right. You just needed to give that player a sense of being in that location. Part of that meant also that you could explore off the beaten track. If a player decided that they wanted to see if they could get up onto the roof of a building or get into some interesting nook or cranny off in the distance, just out of curiosity, then they might spend the next half hour exploring the area in search of a route there. Now, in most games, that search would be ultimately fruitless. There'd be no way there without either cheating or exploiting some kind of glitch in the game's code. But the Tomb Raider team tried to let this same curiosity rule their choices too. 
things like that. You know, there was that temple thing built in the Lost Valley where the dinosaur was. You weren't originally supposed to be able to get on top of it, but it's something like, oh, it'd be cool if you could get up there and find a secret, or it could be cool if you can get up onto that broken bridge that's over the valley. And so suddenly a couple of clicks here and there at the edge of the rock faces, and suddenly Lara was able to navigate her way if you were willing to try and, as a player, work it out. And with the way that Lara's movement capabilities were so tightly interwoven with the grid-based level design, cool and exciting new ways to navigate an environment would just emerge naturally from the geometry. Um, So, for instance, with the Greek level that I did in Tomb Raider 1, I just thought it would be interesting if all of these rooms were centred around a, a almost a central shaft in the level. So what I created was a really long, deep room, and off that long, deep room, the four doors to each one of the challenges was available to you. And by doing that, you've automatically given Lara this tower area to explore up and down the centre of this shaft that you've created. That then turned out to be a perfect place to test a player's skill with lining up and executing running jumps and catching ledges, a technique they'd need to get the hang of in these earlier stages before it gets really tough later on. And Heather had the good fortune too that she could be sure that a player would be able to handle this challenge because she herself was learning the controls as she went through and designed the levels. Because we moved to it too. We'd only just got a, a system where we could start exploring our rooms. So we were like novice Tomb Raider players at that stage. So for instance, if I wanted to drop and catch a ledge by, by level three, if I couldn't do it by level three as the builder, there wasn't going to be much chance of the player actually doing it. Similarly, as development progressed, they learned more about the most interesting ways that Lara could interact with this grid-based environment and began to think of more intricate puzzles involving sliding jumps and timers and the full extent of Lara's acrobatic abilities. And still, always, you could identify your possible routes through a level, not by finding the shiny surfaces or following the on-screen prompts pointing you there, as has become the norm in today's 3D action-adventure games, but rather by understanding that relationship between Lara's capabilities and the geometry of the world. You've already made a calculated choice before you've made the jump, which is something you don't even think about as you get better with controls. You can visualise things straight away. You can look around that level and go, oh, yeah, yeah, I can see. I can. If I jump off that bit there, I can reach that ledge. I'm not going to be able to reach it from over here, but I think I could do it from over there. Um, and that's, that, that's the joy of exploring a level to me. It's not just having it laid out in front of you. I think that's probably something that's, in some ways, I do feel has been lost because, you know, I love games like um, Uncharted and whatnot, but you can tell that I've looked into how they're doing it and you can see that they have to just kind of design the path through the level and where you're going to be able to grab onto and where you're not up front. And then the artists then just obviously make these fantastic looking environments but they, they're kind of restricted to what's been decided already to me at least this kind of disjointed thing that you've got this environment that looks like you should be able to climb up about 50 different ways across the level but actually there's only the ones where they've marked the ledges in kind of white paint that actually allow you to go that way whereas of course back in Tomb Raider days it didn't work like that at all if Lara could reach it she could grab onto it and you know our QA was this kind of nightmare of QA guys finding alternative routes across the level or whatever. But I think that's kind of fun in the sense that, you know, because I know people have found different ways across levels that they're not supposed to. But yeah, having that kind of easy way of building environments, it's obviously just not possible anymore. Game development today is drastically different to the way it was 20 years ago. Back in the days of the original Tomb Raider series, Back then, there was no Unity or Unreal Engine to work in, and when Core Design were making the very first Tomb Raider, there wasn't even a Quake engine to license. So a quick side note on that point, if you trace back the lineage of modern game development tools, most of them start with id Software's Quake engine, which was one of the first 3D game creation tools that you could license for your own games.
mid-1990s, most games were still made more or less from scratch, which meant that much of the development time was spent on technology, on coding the tools that designers and artists use to fill the game with stuff to see and do and the systems that make the game work. Nowadays, by contrast, engines are frequently licensed or reused and the biggest pipeline issue often comes during the content phase, by which I mean that today it's the art that tends to take the most time to do, by a long shot, with tens and hundreds of thousands of man-hours put into graphics on what they call AAA games. Now that's just a fancy word used to describe games backed by a big budget that ensures the highest caliber graphics and sound and technical work that current generation game consoles can handle. So it's the video game equivalent of a blockbuster movie. The key thing to note here is not so much that the choke point in the development pipeline has shifted in 20 years, but rather that the consequence of that shift is that teams are now huge. Tomb Raider 1 was made by a team of six. Rise of the Tomb Raider, the most recent entry in the franchise from 2015, had around 200 people across art, sound, coding and design, which is what that original team of of six had covered, plus hordes of quality assurance testers and other support roles. It's much harder now to keep the playfulness and flexibility in a game's level design as it moves through the stages of production. Just for simple reasons of logistics, dozens of artists might have to redo parts of their work or sit around twiddling their thumbs if a designer wants to do what Heather and Neil did during the original Tomb Raider development, which was to keep experimenting and tweaking with the layouts throughout the process. What happens nowadays is that the designers lay out a bunch of boxes that define the level's core geometry and describe a path or multiple paths through the environment. Then the artists come in and they painstakingly turn those boxes in empty space into what at a glance looks like a living, breathing world. Sometimes that leads to conflict between art and design. So you end up with walls or pipes or bricks of only a certain colour being climbable or grappleable or whatever other kinds of physical interaction a game has like the white walls in Rise of the Tomb Raider. And there's more to this point, but let's come back to it later. First, I need to get back to that grit and what it meant for the original run of Tomb Raider games on PC and PlayStation 1, and also why the grid is still significant. Tomb Raider 1 shook the world. It changed how video games, and in particular video game characters, were perceived and portrayed in mainstream culture. We'd had game characters that became household names before Miss Croft. There was Pac-Man and Mario and Sonic and perhaps Donkey Kong too. But here was a character that was recognisably human, albeit in exaggerated proportions, and that girls could relate to. Here was a heroine that girls could look up to, and indeed that they did look up to. And she couldn't have arrived at a better time with the pop group The Spice Girls having burst onto the music scene just a few months earlier with their in-your-face girl power anthem, Wannabe. It wasn't just Lara's allure as leading lady that people attached to. It was also the game. A computer gaming world review called Tomb Raider's vast and realistic environments spectacular and praised the intricate detail of the level design not only for how beautiful and tempting it looked, but also for how much of it was accessible and how fun it was to discover what you can and cannot reach. Next Generation magazine called it a landmark title. Tomb Raider was pretty much universally lauded, with dozens of awards and millions of copies sold and advertising plastered on billboards and buses and shown on TV. Lara Croft even became a spokesmodel for the Lucozade energy drink. Amidst all this, the media attention on the little studio became suffocating, and the development team lost control of their creation. 
Marketing were calling the shots now. And animator and creative lead Toby Gard didn't like that. He hated how Lara was getting sexualized and pimped out to sell products, and he refused to work on a sequel. Core had never been big on sequels. Their internal culture was more akin to a collective of bedroom coders who all worked together in the same converted mansion. But this one was out of their control. Tomb Raider had sold ridiculous numbers. It had saved the publisher Eidos from bankruptcy. And they wanted another one, Rain, Hail or Shine. Within a few months, Toby would end up leaving the company. Programmer Paul Douglas in tow to get his creative freedom back and to work on something else. Here's how level designer and artist Heather Stevens remembers it. Oh, God, it was horrible. It was horrible when Toby... It really was horrible when Toby left. I, we, we, we talked... We tried to talk him round. At the end of Tomb Raider 1, he kind of was sat in a room there just mithering on to get himself wrapped up in what had gone on at Eidos and the marketing and all the rest of it. And he was kind of let it go, Toby. Enjoy and reap the rewards now. This is what we've worked for. I don't know. I don't know what went wrong. I don't know why Toby couldn't see that this is what it's all about when you make a game you sit back at the end of it you 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 eat those you know those the profits from the game any royalties you're going to get you enjoy you take a break and you move on and you make another game um, I don't know whether it was exhaustion with Toby as well or or what but it was just a really really sad point when he left Core really sad because he was he was he was the founding father of Tomb Raider he was you know he, he was like person who was in charge of the team he, he held us all together um, he tightened up our designs over, oversaw everything that we did so certainly by the time we did you know when we, when we realised we were going to make Tomb Raider 2 there was definitely I felt apprehensive I didn't feel as though I'd got that net there anymore of Toby you know he, he was more than just a designer he was somebody who, who was very good at giving you an input on, on how to improve your levels or how he saw, you know, the game, how he visualised the next stage of the game. It's here where we begin to see Tomb Raider's other legacy, the cynical side of what Gavin's grid-based level editor enabled. There had been video game sequels before Tomb Raider, of course, and many had even been rushed out to make a quick buck, quite famously so in some cases. And there'd also been hit games that had broken into the mainstream, like Space Invaders and SimCity and Myst and Super Mario Brothers. But Tomb Raider was all of these, and more. Tomb Raider is where we saw the emergence, perhaps for the first time, of a systematic marketing machine built around a specific game franchise. A mass marketing machine. And that, perhaps, is what Toby Gard sensed was going to happen when he decided to publicly rail against the overtly sexy marketing and outrageous advertising that Lara was put through, where she's appearing on magazine covers in her underwear. This Indiana Jones-like adventurer. She was his creation, but neither he nor anyone else on the Tomb Raider team had any say in how she would be portrayed outside of the game. They could do nothing to prevent these seductive magazine covers and posters or the gigantic ads that they'd see plastered on the side of a London bus or on a beer mat. They could do nothing about the association forming in people's minds that made Lara Croft famous, not for raiding tombs in a video game and kicking bad guy butt, but for being a sexy virtual character with big breasts, short shorts, a braided ponytail, and some really seductive outfits. It would sometimes go on an adventure. And nobody, do you know the irony of it as Richard? The only thing that wound me up about the marketing side of things was you get, often people would go, oh yeah, you made, you made Lara Croft. And you just want to go, no, I made Tomb Raider. It was a game. And I don't think people, I think it was the first time that people kind of thought, of Lara Croft as a, as as her own uh, as her own separate entity, if you know what I mean. Before that, it was just games with characters in it. And the thing that made it possible for this marketing machine to spin so fast to constantly keep Ms. Croft in the public eye 
I think it was the grid. Without the grid, they could have never churned out four high-quality sequels in as many years, albeit with this drip feed of innovation and novelty that was too slow to curb player and critic fatigue, which is why review scores and sales declined steadily from incredible at 7 million and 8 million for the first two games to merely respectable after that. This drip feed was not one that the developers consciously applied, in fairness. They did the best they could in the limited time they had. But that limited time was so short, only about nine months per game, that larger changes or improvements were impossible. Not that they actually had that many ideas for new things to do with Gavin's grid-based engine anyway. without the large-scale overhauls that just were not possible in the time available. I think with Tomb Raider 2, the main, pretty much all the features we put in were more about fixing the things that weren't, that were holes in the original. So one of the details of the original game was, as I say, Lara was getting all these different moves to help her navigate the environment, but there were holes in her repertoire the main one in the first one was that all water had to have a fixed sized lip around the edge and she couldn't wade in it she didn't have any animations for anything like that so there was no kind of concept of a shallow pool or a pool that she could wade in so the level designs had to ensure you know these were the kind of cause of bugs where if they'd accidentally made a bit where a piece of rock on the bottom of a watery bit stuck up too high then Lara would end up it just didn't work, so we fixed that up by giving her all the moves she needed to navigate any kind of depth of water, and that also allowed them level designers to build slopes that went straight into water and things like that, and shallow pools and bits you had to wade through, which obviously got used quite a lot for things like the sunken ship. The other issue they'd had on Tomb Raider 1 was Lara needing to gain height in the original you know, obviously she'd come down pretty quickly, jumping and hopping between things, but going up, they were constantly having to find that they had to build quite complicated, you know, this is only a certain height she could jump, so they had to build tight chunks of level that were all about Lara just gaining height. And they were like, well, it'd be a lot easier if we had things like ladders and walls she could climb that way, she could gain height very quickly. So that led to all the climbing moves going in. What else did she get? Oh, the other one was just being able to jump whenever you hit the jump button rather than waiting until her foot was touching on the ground, which definitely smoothed out her movement. And then, yeah, and the other thing that went into Tomb Raider 2 very early on, which just came out of me playing at the Christmas time before it really started, was the dynamic lighting, um, which we used for kind of flares that she could carry around and drop to light up places and just generally lighting up. I don't think we ever used it quite as much as I hoped we would, but... Uh, it was used for various bits and bobs around the level. I mean, it actually, it actually got to the point where later on when I was playing some of the levels, I was actually taking out some of the lights so that you had an excuse to use the, the dynamic lighting. That actually led to that room. There's a room on Tomb Raider 2 where you go into a room full of caged yetis. And it's totally pitch black, and that was purely because I had, suddenly had this bright idea of taking out all the lights so that you, know, you had a reason to be running around in the dark using your flares. After Tomb Raider 2, the bulk of the team had had enough. If they were to make another Tomb Raider, they said, it had to have a longer development period so that they could do something new with the series. They'd done what they wanted to with the grid as it was, and had lost the creative spark to push on with the same set of tools. But publisher Eidos, of course, had other ideas. They'd come to rely on Tomb Raider to balance their books, and they insisted that Tomb Raider 3 had to come out a year after Tomb Raider 2. Every one of us had that little creative spark and that point saying, you know, we've had enough of this now, let's move on. And by the end of Tomb Raider 2, it wouldn't have mattered what people offered us to stay and work on a third one, we wouldn't have took it, because we, we, we needed a change. So, yeah, so the rewards were there and we could sit back then and say, OK, I've got my mortgage paid off, which was a dream for any one of us. 
and we're not talking stupid mortgages, but just to be in a position in life where, you know, if we needed to have a year out of work, you could do it. And that, that was the first time ever a lot of us had experienced that since leaving school at 16. Or if you wanted to set up your own little project or your own hobbies or anything, you had the luxury of being able to do that, paid by the Tomb Raider, you know. So it was a big thank you to the game. But at the same time, you need you need to move on from that because you just end up in a hole. You just wallow in it. And I think it wouldn't have done anybody any good on our team, certainly, to carry on and make any more. I think it would have drained us. And certainly, time scale-wise, there wasn't any more well, you know, if we need another four or five months to do it, then that wasn't an option uh, because those Christmas releases were paramount. As far as IDOS was concerned and Core Design, it had to be another Christmas release. It had to be another Christmas release. And that was an awful lot of pressure to put anybody under, certainly the original team, because we kind of worked flat out for three years by that stage. And it was a big ask. I think we all needed a break from it, to be honest. The Tomb Raider team shifted to a new project while a different team came in to take over for the third game. This new team opened up the spaces even more and added a few nifty features like coloured lighting and the ability for Lara to sprint and crawl. Maybe the crawling wasn't so well received. But they too quickly ran out of ideas for ways to eke more life out of the original grid system. Shortly before they finished the fourth game, they took advantage of Core's bedroom coder culture, which had afforded them a lot of day-to-day freedom, to sneak in a surprise ending in an effort to rid themselves of Miss Croft for a couple of years. Here's how Andy Sandham, one of the level designers, described it to me when I interviewed him for an Ars Technica article back in 2015. Which, you know, if you were, if you tried to get away with killing Lara now, you know, you'd, you'd immediately be sacked, probably. Effectively, we just, we came up with the scripts, you know, to, to kind of, to, because we were getting very tired of, of, of doing Tomb Raider, of our Tomb Raider 4. So we, we kind of, we decided to kill Lara. And I don't even know if we actually told Jeremy, but Jeremy was perfectly happy with it. And um, when he found out, and um, it's crazy, because, you know, it's like a commodity like, Obviously, we were aware that, that Lara could be brought back from the dead, so to speak, but um, it's just crazy that we were allowed so much freedom with such a iconic figure, you know, because they trusted us. They trusted us. With, they trusted our creativity, you know. I, I guess you wouldn't have been much surprised, but um, how did you feel when, uh, you know, after you kill off Lara, I just turns around straight away and says, are you making another Tomb Raider game? Yeah, um, that wasn't immediate because what realistically, um, what we used to do is that we would spend because we hadn't quite worked out um, how to schedule ourselves properly at that point. And Adrian was was introducing new pieces of software like uh, Project Manager, the Microsoft Project Manager. So we were all kind of in the dark as to what we were doing. But basically, um, we couldn't schedule ourselves. So what we normally do on a project is we we would spend six months crunching till about two or three in the morning every night, and at that age we could still do it. And then we'd spend about four months pissing around, like researching the new game and and kind of just relaxing and kind of um, enjoying the success of the game. And then, um, But if realistically, if we just scheduled it properly, we could have worked kind of nine to six every day and uh, and not had to crunch. But we, we used to kind of end up crunching for between three and six months at each project, you know. So really, it didn't come straight away. It, you know, we, I think Jeremy was in talks with them for a while, but I think we knew that there was always going to be some type of Tomb Raider game every year, but we, we were kind of hoping that it might get passed on to another team at that point. Amazingly, because, you know, we were all becoming quite well off out of the game. But um, it, we were kind of hoping at that point that somebody else would take it on. But, but yeah, no, we were, we were, because we knew the system so well, we were kind of dragged back in and um, uh, kicking and screaming. I, I mean, I remember that being the hardest project of all Tomb Raider 5 Chronicles, I think it was, uh, because, you know, we, we all sat in our own little corners and just kind of hammered it out, really. Whereas before it had been, even up to four, it had been a hugely creative environment. As if it wasn't short-sighted enough to drive Tomb Raider into the ground with over-aggressive release schedules and marketing hype forcing the main Tomb Raider team to work on this fifth game meant that they weren't available to help in the early stages of the first PlayStation 2 Tomb Raider. 
the Angel of Darkness, which would finally introduce a new engine. Without their experience there, to steer things in the right direction, the project was overscoped and bad decisions were made, and that ultimately would lead to core design's downfall. Tomb Raider would end up crossing the Atlantic, entrusted to Legacy of Kane developers Crystal Dynamics, and Core would die a miserably slow death. But that's a different, longer story, and I've told it elsewhere anyway, in that Ars Technica article that I mentioned before. So let's get back to the grid. The Tomb Raider grid's legacy is much the same as Tomb Raider's legacy. It paved the way for the annualized sequels and mass marketing that nearly destroyed Call of Duty, Assassin's Creed, Halo, among others. It triggered a shift in video game development that put the focus less on creating a great game and more on hitting marketing milestones and buzzwords. Because there's now often as much money tied up in marketing commitments that are made months in advance as there is in the development itself. And couple that with the technological changes I talked about earlier in the episode, where grids are out of favour and the graphical fidelity has reached a point that you need an army of artists and a large support crew of programmers to get a new game looking spick and span, and you have an explanation for why classic Tomb Raider's modern successes, games like Uncharted, Horizon Zero Dawn and Rise of the Tomb Raider, feels so different. The running and jumping is just not the same. I, you know, I play these modern games and it's just not quite the same. You, when you are doing the jumping around on the side of things, it's, I don't know, it doesn't feel much risk to it, does it? You know, when you climb outside of a building, you can't miss the jump ever. Your character's either going to do it or not when you're kind of moving Nathan Drake or, you know, Lara Croft up a sheer rock face. Whereas... Obviously, Tomb Raider, you did have to look and go, can I make that jump? Can I do it? And then hit the button and see if you did. And if you didn't, you were potentially falling halfway down the cliff. But that came out of the fact that it was possible for a player to look at that again and look at that grid and go, yeah, I reckon I can make that. I can judge that. Whereas in a modern game, that would feel unfair because the jump distances don't tend to be particularly fixed or anything. You you can hit the button sometimes and watch your character jump some possible distance you couldn't do just a minute ago, just because that's where the kind of catch points have been placed in the level and they've been put further apart in this particular case. So, you know, the animation stretches and the character shoots across some huge distance. But we didn't do that at all. The principles of that old grid do live on, however. They're in the methodical puzzling of mobile game Lara Croft Go and the precise level design of Rise of the Tomb Raider's optional tombs And they're in one of the most popular, most successful games of all time, Minecraft. Minecraft's blockiness is no mere aesthetic. It's the consequence of its voxel-based engine, a cubic variation on the same grid conceit that Tomb Raider used. It's a limitation, sort of, that engine, but it's also what makes that game what it is. You know, Minecraft doesn't you try to imagine a kind of Minecraft where you had a freeform environment, it's just suddenly a completely different game. You know, it's not really going to work anymore. It's not going to be the same thing. And I think that's sort of what happened with Tomb Raider is those early games. The moment we lost that grid on for Angel of Darkness and those guys were trying to do freeform environments, everything went a bit sideways. Grids provide limitations and restraints, which can certainly hold back a design. But if given enough fidelity, and if paired with a few well-designed systems that adhere to the same logic, they become magnificent tools for creativity. And that's what Minecraft is. It's a game about creativity. It's a game about making, unmaking, and remaking stuff, using small cubes on a grid. Tomb Raider's level design process in the days of the grid was much the same. You know, Tomb Raider levels tended to evolve. In the early days, we had design meetings that you know, spend all day coming up with all kinds of different puzzles and that, and then level designs went off and just built, you know, stuff <laughs> that vaguely related to what we talked about. But we started to realise by Tomb Raider 2, we got it down to kind of a couple of hours where we'd come up with maybe half a dozen 
key points in the level that would be cool because we knew that you know they'd go away and they take those basic ideas you know they just need a few ideas sort of get them going kind of thing then they'd take that and as they build the level they embellish it just naturally because that's the way it kind of worked the room industry as you stuck something down because Laura was going to be able to catch on to it if you put something at the right height suddenly that shed you built um, oh well actually why don't I make her go across the top of it oh actually why don't I put the key up there then oh actually that's like you know I had that kind of a little insight into it because I did build the basis of the Venice level on Tomb Raider 2 because Heather was running out of time and saying oh I've got time to do it so I built it over the weekend because we got the boat working we needed you know it's like well, we can't miss out with key Venice level the one with boat the one with the canals so I just had a go and I just built the basis of that level and I just discovered how it worked that you just went oh yeah I could just make it go oh actually you know just sticking some awnings down outside of buildings and you go oh actually be cool if she went up there oh, and then they've evolved very much like that which, uh, I think it was fun the fact that graphics and the yeah I guess that's why it's kept people carrying on playing with it. The Tomb Raider level editor was released free with the PC version of the fifth game, and it's still used by a passionate community of fan creators today, many of whom are involved in the level editing community because they don't see any other games that can scratch the same itch as old school Tomb Raider. And with their custom modifications and extensions to the editor, it's actually able to produce some incredible levels and remarkably organic looking environments, all while still adhering to that grid that preserves the game's internal logic. And so I think these amateur creators have proven that the Tomb Raider grid system could still have a place in game design today, if only someone had the courage to do so outside of Minecraft and Minecraft-like games. And I guess someday we probably will, given that there are tens or hundreds of millions of kids growing up with Minecraft's simple grid-based creation systems. And they will eventually look for something that applies the same principles to other kinds of game experiences, to different kinds of adventures. Because a world built playfully and whimsically out of blocks will always lend itself to curiosity and playfulness on the part of its visitors, while a world that's built methodically out of pre-carved stone will tend to divert attention to the one true path, the preordained touch points on the way to the objective, such that everything else becomes window dressing. Which leaves me wondering, the graphical fidelity and realistic animations of games like Uncharted 4, Assassin's Creed Origins and Call of Duty World War II It's wonderful. At times it's utterly breathtaking. But at what cost has it come to the design? What might these games have been had their level designers had the ability to experiment and play with a more rigid, limited, consistent, open-ended system like the Tomb Raider level editor or Minecraft? Are we really better off chasing the technology curve? Don't you think you've seen enough? The Life and Times of Video Games is created entirely by me, Richard Moss, with support from my patrons. And thank you especially to my producer-level backers, Kerry Clanton, Joel Weber, Rob Eberhardt, Simon Moss, Wade Trigaskis, Vivek Mohan, Seth Robinson, and Scott Grant. You guys have been an amazing support for me. If you would like to join them and make a monthly contribution to support the creation of this show for as little as a dollar a month, you can do so at patreon.com slash life and times of video games. All one word, that's patreon.com slash life and times of video games. You can also make a one-off donation via PayPal on paypal.me 
slash mossrc, or support me by buying one of my books. The Secret History of Mac Gaming Expanded Edition is about to come out as I am releasing this uh, remastered episode just a few days from now. It'll be out. And Shareware Heroes Independent Games at the Dawn of the Internet is available for pre-order. It'll be out next year. I'll have links to these in the episode notes. And if you're not in a position to give me any money, you can always support the show simply by sharing it. Now, this is huge. If you tell other people about your favorite episodes, they discover that this show exists. I don't advertise, so the show only grows via word of mouth. And as always, the website you can share or the place where you can find old episodes and show notes and and anything else related to this podcast, that's lifeandtimes.games. Until next time, my name is Richard Moss, and this was the Life and Times of Video Games. Thanks for listening. I'll see ya. I waffled again, Richard. Sorry. <laughs>